Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as He spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out His fierce anger against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. And he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, inspired without error, and given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Father, we are a people who stand in need of grace. Every single day we stand in need of Your grace, Father. To know You, to respond to You rightly, to resist the urges of the flesh. Father, to stand firm against the schemes of the evil one. Father, to live faithfully in this world. Every day, we're a people who stand in need of Your grace. And we rejoice today, Father, to know that You are a God of grace who gives to the humble and contrite in heart the grace that they need. So we ask now with confidence, God, that You would help us to understand Your Word, that You would help us to hear it as we ought, and that we would respond, Father, with faithful, obedient lives. Father, keep me from error as we speak from Your Word. Give Your people discernment, Father. What a gift it is for a church to be full of Christians who are discerning and can know, Father, the truth from error. Would You give us that gift today, we pray. We trust, God, that You will be at work among us, magnifying the name of Your Son and conforming us more and more to His image. 
We pray confidently in His name and for His glory. Amen. It's been said before that if you want to know a person's character, watch how he or she responds to a crisis. When the pressure mounts, where do they turn? When adversity strikes, what do they do? Do they run? Do they work twice as hard? Do they become embittered or hopeless? Generally speaking, a crisis does have this unique ability to expose our hearts, to show us where our hope is found. It's actually one of the unexpected outcomes of adversity. It can be a mirror that reflects us as we really are. If you want to know a person's character, watch how he or she responds to a crisis. Here in 1 Samuel 28, we encounter Saul at perhaps his greatest moment of crisis. This is the last night of Saul's life, though he doesn't know it yet. By this time tomorrow in our story, Saul will be dead, as will all of his sons. This is adversity at its most intense moment. If we were to ever get a glimpse of what Saul is truly like, this would be it. And so, as this crisis unfolds, what do we learn about Saul? Where does he turn when the pressure mounts? Not to God, but to the forbidden practice of witchcraft. Even for Saul, this is a shocking revelation. Here on the last night of his life, Saul seeks refuge in the occult. Understand, friends, this passage is meant to jar you. I had someone say to me recently, yeah, that, that chapter is really weird. And it is. That's part of the point. It's unsettling on purpose. Even for Saul, even for Saul, it is shocking to witness him spend the final hours of his life in the house of a witch, utterly bereft of God, and therefore without hope in the world. I don't care who you put in that sentence. That's shocking. It's enough to send chills down your spine. And it should. But before we work through all the details of this unsettling chapter, there are a couple of introductory matters we need to address just here at the beginning. First off, there's the issue of content. The issue of content. That is, what actually happens in the passage. Did this woman really call Saul up from the grave, or Samuel up from the grave? Was it actually Samuel who appeared to Saul? Are these things real? Well, we have to recognize that the text shows no signs of questioning what happened. As one scholar has put it, this chapter comes to us with the stamp of authenticity. When you read the passage, there's nothing here that would suggest this is fake. There was nothing here, there's nothing here that would suggest this is some sort of fantasy. The plain reading of 1 Samuel 28 is that Saul consulted with a medium and then spoke with the spirit of Samuel. How did it all work? The text doesn't give us the details, and that's on purpose too. The Bible would have no interest in spreading these sorts of things. You can imagine little Israelite 12-year-olds saying, did you know there's a thing about witchcraft in the Bible? Let's go read it. The Bible has no interest in spreading those details. 
For my part, I take that this happened by God's special permission. God brought this to pass, brought this to pass in order to accomplish His purpose. Still, some would object and say, yeah, Jeff, but these kinds of practices are forbidden in the Bible because they're powerless. Not necessarily. They're forbidden because they're pagan, not because they're powerless. Friends, there is a realm of darkness that is real. There is a realm of darkness that is powerful and is therefore not to be trifled with. That's why the law of Moses forbids these things. Not because they're futile, but because they're pagan. So in terms of content, we'll consider the chapter from the standpoint of authenticity. This is what actually happened to Saul on the last night of his life, even if we don't understand all of the details. Along with the content of the chapter, we should also note the context of the passage. The context. The big picture is very helpful here. So zoom out with me for just a minute from from chapter 28, and let's just look at the whole for a second. You'll remember last week, we witnessed David wind up in a dilemma of his own making. The first two verses of chapter 28 describe that situation. You can look there. David sought refuge among the Philistines, but now the Philistines expect David to fight with them when they go to war with Israel. So David is stuck between that proverbial rock and a hard place. If he fights against Israel, then there's no coming back. If he doesn't fight against Israel, then the Philistines will know that they've been played. So you can see the dilemma. David is stuck. But as we move into verse 3 of chapter 28, the author of 1 Samuel pauses David's story. He takes a time out from David's story and he goes on this detour with Saul. In terms of chronology, chapter 28 is out of place. It should come after chapter 30 in terms of chronology. But the author has moved it up to this point. He leaves us hanging on David's dilemma, and he takes us on this detour with Saul. Now, why would the author do that? Why would he he take this detour? Why would he disrupt the chronology of the events? Well, the answer, friends, is to make one final contrast between David and Saul. David is on the wrong side of the Philistines, but Saul is on the wrong side of God. And that is much, much worse. That's the contrast. There's some things worse than being stuck in difficult circumstances. And that something is being cut off from God. You see the contrast? Both men face a dilemma. But Saul's situation is terrifying on an entirely different level. David is in trouble because of his questionable decision. Saul is in trouble because he's turned his back on the Lord. You see, the context, the big picture, helps us understand and apply this unusual passage. 1 Samuel 28 is a warning. That's what this text is doing. It's a warning. It's a picture of what happens when a person chooses to pursue darkness and live in rebellion against God. It's a picture of what happens. It's a warning. So, in light of that context, we can now consider the details of this final night from Saul's life. There are three specific warnings God would say to us from 1 Samuel 28. 
Three specific warnings. The first one comes in verses 3 to 6. If you ignore God's Word, then God may leave you in silence. If you ignore God's Word, then God may leave you in silence. Verse 3 gives us some important background for what's about to happen. Verse 3 is a flashback that explains the ensuing situation. Notice again what the text says. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. You'll remember that Samuel was the great prophet priest of Israel for the majority of his life. Samuel spoke the word of the Lord to the people of God. But you'll also remember that Saul did not have the best relationship with Samuel. In fact, it was Samuel who confronted Saul at what proved to be the turning point of his life. Remember chapter 15 where Saul deliberately disobeyed God's Word? It was Samuel who announced God's judgment. The kingdom would be torn out of Saul's hand and given to David. So Saul has history with Samuel, but it's not exactly encouraging history. Here in verse 3, however, Samuel has passed away. So, his prophetic ministry is no longer working in Israel. It's a bit of foreshadowing, isn't it? Samuel, the man who was most responsible for speaking the Word of God, is gone. And that makes us question as readers, where will the Word of the Lord come from now? That Samuel is gone. Even with Samuel gone, Saul is not entirely ignorant when it comes to God's Word. Notice the end of verse 3 where the text says, Saul put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Saul drove them out. And he did this because God's Word commanded him to. Leviticus 19.31 clearly stated, Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out. And so make yourselves unclean by them. In fact, in Exodus and Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, there's all of these prohibitions against mediums, against necromancers. So, so catch what's happening here. Samuel the prophet may be gone, but at some point, Saul knew enough of God's Word to know that he should get rid of these wicked practices. He knew enough to know he should get rid of the mediums. That's the takeaway of verse 3. Saul is going into the final night of his life with eyes wide open. He knows what God has said. Verse 4 brings us back to the present, where we find Saul facing an immediate and imposing threat Notice the details of the situation. Verse 4, The Philistines have gathered their forces for war, and their intention is to decimate Saul's kingdom. This is a desperate situation for Saul. The geography of this particular area in Israel played to the Philistines' strength. This was flat ground, so the Philistines could unleash their chariots, which was their most feared weapon. Flat ground, Saul has no chariots. It's a desperate situation. Notice verse 5, When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid. And his heart trembled greatly. It's an immediate and imposing threat. Saul is afraid. It's a desperate situation. But as imposing as the Philistines are, Saul soon soon finds out his situation is actually much, much worse. Notice what happens in verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Friends, that verse should get your attention. 
The Philistine army may be frightening, but it's nothing compared to the silence of God. The Lord has nothing to say to Saul. All of the appointed means for God to communicate with His people are silent. He has nothing to say to Saul. Saul is completely in the dark. He has no access to the mind and counsel and wisdom of God. All Saul has is a deafening silence. The Lord has nothing to say to him. You might be thinking, why would God do this? This seems so harsh. Why won't He answer Saul? Remember Saul's history with Samuel, friends. How did Saul respond to Samuel who spoke the word of the Lord? Time after time, Saul ignored Samuel and by doing so, he ignored God's word. When God's word commanded, Saul disobeyed. When God's word instructed, Saul went his own way. When God's word rebuked him, Saul refused to repent. Time after time, Samuel spoke the word of God and time after time, Saul ignored it. That's been the testimony of his life. He wanted nothing to do with the Word of the Lord. He despised it. So what does the Lord do here in verse 6? God gives Saul the fruit of his rebellion. He gives Saul what he wants. He gives Saul silence. Do you see the justice of God, friends? Saul did not want God's Word. So in his justice, the Lord took His Word away. Saul is a man forsaken because he has forsaken God. The Philistine army is imposing, but it is nothing compared to the loss of God's Word. If you ignore God's Word, then God may very well leave you in silence. That's the warning here, friends. And it is sobering. There is a kind of hard-hearted refusal to listen that actually cuts you off from the Lord. It's what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 1. It's what Saul is evidencing here. There's a kind of hard-hearted refusal to listen that cuts you off from God so that you can't hear His Word anymore. Understand, friends, anytime we hear God's Word, it's an evidence of God's mercy and His grace. God is under no obligation to reveal Himself. God is not bound to give us His Word. It's only His grace that gives us His Word. But if we respond to that grace with hard-heartedness, then the Lord may very well withdraw that Word and leave us in what we want. Silence. So I don't intend to sound trite here at all, but I do want to impress upon us that right now, is always the best time to respond to the Word of God. Right now. Do not delay, friends. Delay is a synonym for disobedience. Do not delay. When you hear God's Word, respond in repentance and faith. If you don't know the Lord this morning, then God's Word is calling you to lay down your rebellion against Him and trust in the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. There's only one way to escape the judgment of God, and that's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't delay that response another day longer if you're not a Christian. Don't delay. God's Word is open to you right now. And that means right now is the time to respond. You may not have tomorrow. Respond today. Listen to the warning of Saul's life. Don't ignore God's Word, for the day may come when you can't hear it. 
Listen today, believe, and be saved. Brothers and sisters, do you see what a priceless treasure it is to have God's Word? That's the other side of the warning from Saul's life. The silence in verse 6 should remind us of how precious the Bible should be to us. We should not take it lightly. We should not take it for granted. Instead, we should be quick to open it, quick to study it, and most of all, quick to obey what it says. Let me ask you, friends. Is the Lord working conviction in your life right now? Is there some area of your life where the Lord is using His Word to expose your heart and to call you to repentance? If so, then make today the day of response. Or perhaps it's not conviction over sin. Perhaps it's a calling to devote yourself more fully to living for the glory of God. Perhaps there's a change in your home that God is calling you to make. Perhaps there's a change in how you approach the vocation God has called you to. Perhaps you've been viewing your home as just a place where you have to manage other people. Perhaps you've been viewing your job as just a place where you go to earn a paycheck and not as a location where God is calling you to display His glory. Perhaps the Lord is telling you to make a change there. Is there an area where the Scriptures are calling you to grow? Where they're calling you to change? Is there a place where God is calling you to step out in faith? Remember, friends, that's how God speaks to His people today, through His Word. So, if He's using His Word to call you to some change, then make today the time to respond. To have the Bible is precious. To have the Bible is a treasure. And when the Bible calls us to respond to God, we should do so, not tomorrow, but now. Let the warning of Saul's life be a means of grace in your own. That's how these things work in the Bible. Let the warning in Saul's life be a means of grace in your own. Listen to God's Word. Understand what a priceless treasure it is to have God's Word. Listen, and then respond in obedience and faith. If you ignore God's Word, then God may very well leave you in silence. As we continue on in the chapter, we find another warning from Saul, this time verses 7-14. to If you refuse God's ways, then God may hand you over to darkness. If you refuse God's ways, then God may hand you over to darkness. Some folks might say I'm being too hard on Saul. That he's not as forsaken as he seems to be. I wish that were the case, but the verdict of the text is simply too clear. If there were any doubt about Saul's spiritual state, then verse 7 and following should dispel it with tragic clarity. With no access to God's revelation, Saul runs headlong into darkness. Notice how Saul responds to the silence in verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. In the Old Testament, silence from God was always a signal for the people to repent. Silence always always equaled repentance. If you inquired of God and He did not answer you, then you could know very easily, "I, I need to repent. I need to examine my life and confess my sin to the Lord. See, that's the important point to remember about the Lord's silence towards Saul here in this passage. It's an instance of what C.S. Lewis called severe mercy. God's silence should be as loud as a megaphone calling, shouting for Saul to repent. 
But what's Saul's first instinct in verse 7? His first instinct, immediately he turns to the darkness. Immediately, Saul turns to what God's Word forbids. Friends, that's the state of Saul's heart. He's more at home in the darkness than he is in the light. He's more at ease pursuing evil than he is pursuing God. What's more, Saul knows what he's doing. He knows this is wrong. Remember that background from verse 3? How Saul put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land? That proves Saul knows this is sinful. But he does it anyway. Do you know what the Bible calls that, friends? The Bible calls that sinning with a high hand. It's like that moment when you see your little child reaching for the light socket with their finger, and you look at him and you say, son, don't, don't touch that light socket. And your little child looks back at you straight in the eyes and he sticks out his little finger and he touches the light socket anyway. What's, what's your cute little depraved child doing at that point? He's not just disobeying you, he's defying you. He's looking you in your face and saying, you don't run me. You can't tell me what to do. That's what Saul is doing here. Like a little child who thinks he knows better than his father, Saul looks God in the face and he defies him. Saul sins with a high hand. Sadly, that's only the beginning. Now that Saul has turned toward the darkness, that same darkness begins to dominate him. Notice how rapidly things spiral downward with Saul. Verse 8, he engages in deception. He puts on a disguise and he heads out in the middle of the night. If you've got to cover your tracks at night in a disguise, you're not doing anything good. You see, he knows this is wrong. That's why he chooses the security of secrecy. He doesn't want to be exposed. But you see what else is happening here? The darkness is getting deeper. Notice also verse 9, Saul's conscience is seared. When he asks the medium to bring up a spirit, she refuses at first. A medium with more integrity than the king of Israel. She refuses. Haven't you heard what Saul's done to the mediums? She's not going to do this. If she calls up a spirit, then surely she'll be punished. But you know what's striking about this is that the mention of Saul's past obedience does nothing to shake him out of his present darkness. Does nothing. He just brushes it off. His conscience is seared. He's hardened in his sin. Still, the darkness keeps pulling him in. Notice verse 10. Saul blasphemes the name of the Lord. Do you remember the third commandment, friends? You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. That's exactly what Saul does here. He swears by God that nothing will happen to this woman. He claims the authority to abrogate God's word. He uses the Lord's name to compel this woman into sin. The covenant name of God to twist this medium's arm into sin. And Saul does this without batting an eye. He just right off the tongue. No, I swear, I swear to God nothing's going to happen to you. That's what he says. Again, do you see the progression? Saul rushed into the darkness and now that darkness is pulling him deeper and deeper into its grip. Finally, notice verses 11 to 14. Saul bows under the darkness. His blasphemous oath works. The woman agrees to conjure up the spirit of Samuel. But when she does, she cries out in terror. Verse 12. Why does she cry out in terror? Well, perhaps this had never happened to her before. Perhaps this is the first time it ever worked. Who knows? Whatever the reason, 
She's frightened by Samuel's appearance. And then she learns the truth. The man sitting in front of her is none other than Saul. Then notice what Saul does in verse 14. He bows his face to the ground. What a sad, telling picture. Saul would not submit himself to the Lord at all. But here he is in the house of a forbidden medium in the middle of the night, bowing before a spirit conjured up from the grave. Saul has been brought low, but he's been brought low under the darkness. If you refuse God's ways, then God may hand you over to darkness. It's the warning. Friends, I purposefully went through those verses step by step so that we would see the progression. Darkness is never satisfied. Sin is never content. The appetite of your flesh is insatiable. It will always progress and take you deeper until eventually your life is dominated by darkness. I'm sure some of you are curious about questions related to the occult and how all this happened, but that's actually not the burden of God's Word here. The burden of this passage is to remind us that sin should never be taken lightly. Sin should never be taken lightly. Darkness is never to be toyed with. But oh, how often do we think we can do just that? How easily do we think, well, I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to compromise here on this point and do what God forbids, but, but I'll never go further into the really bad stuff. I might lie to my spouse, but I would never commit adultery. I might covet my neighbor's things, but I'd never steal from my employer. I might question God's Word here or there, but I'd never walk away from the faith. Friends, that's the reasoning of a fool. That's the reasoning of a fool. Sin is progressive. Darkness always takes us deeper. The evil one does not want a little bite out of your heart. He wants your soul. Listen to the warning of Saul's life. Please hear God's Word on this point. Saul is a man given over to darkness. He's been given over to sin's domination. And his tragic end is like a lighthouse beam cutting through the fog right now in our lives, calling us to repentance, calling us to vigilance against sin. Each of us should take time today to take stock over where we are in the pursuit of holiness before God. It's not a question of do I have something to confess and repent? It's just what is it? And listen, we're all in that boat together. That's why we're all part of this church together. So find a brother or sister, grab him by the arm and say, I need your help, just like you need mine. That's what Saul's life is doing. It's warning us, it's calling us to renewed vigilance against sin, calling us to repentance. If you refuse God's ways, God may very well hand you over to darkness. One final warning from Saul's life. This time, verses 15 to 25. If you reject God, then God will leave you in judgment. If you reject God, then God will leave you in judgment. Verse 15 begins the exchange between the rejected king and the departed prophet. Samuel asks why he's been disturbed, and Saul blames God. Did you catch that? Verse 15, Saul says, God has turned away from me and answers me no more. 
No, friends, the truth is Saul has turned from God. Not God from Saul. That's the reason for the silence. Saul has rejected God, and therefore the Lord has given Saul what he wanted. He's left Saul on his own. Then Samuel responds, and his words are striking. Listen again to what Samuel says, beginning in verse 16. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done, has done to you as He spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out His fierce anger against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you today. Now, did you notice there's nothing new in Samuel's response? He doesn't tell him anything new. Samuel simply repeats God's word as it has been revealed earlier to Saul. Remember, friends, God does not change, and His Word does not change. Saul seeks some new revelation, as if God has been holding out on him. Saul seeks new revelation, but there's nothing to add. Saul doesn't need new revelation. He needs repentance. There's nothing new to say. What more can he say than to you he hath said? There's nothing more to say So Samuel's message confirms the reality of God's judgment. That judgment becomes very clear in verse 19. Samuel does add one detail, but it's not a change. He tells Saul that the end is near. Tomorrow, Saul will die. And the Lord will fulfill His word against the house of Saul. The chapter then ends in darkness. Notice verses 20 to 25. Saul appears to faint at the news of his impending death. And it's left to this medium, to this witch, to care for him. That's how Saul spends his last night on earth. In the darkness, eating his last meal in the home of a forbidden woman. Notice the final words of the chapter. Then they rose and went away that night. It began in darkness, it ends in darkness. Saul reaps the fruit of his rebellion. He rejected God and therefore God has left Saul to face his judgment. That's the warning. If you reject God, then God will consign you to judgment. So repent and believe and be saved. It's a dark and sobering chapter, isn't it? 1 Samuel 28 is a warning. And I pray God would give us ears to hear His Word as we should. The heaviness of the chapter does raise one final question. And it's one of... I would like us to consider as we close, is there any hope to be found in this passage? These are weighty matters. These are difficult things. Is there any hope to be found amidst the darkness? Thankfully, friends, the answer is yes. There is hope to be found here. But to find that hope, you have to listen to 1 Samuel 28 in concert with John 13. Think of two speakers in a stereo system. You've got 1 Samuel 28 and John 13. Both of them together. Listened to them together. Both of them should give us hope. Both passages, both 1 Samuel and John, speak of a final meal. A last supper, you could say. In 1 Samuel 28, Saul eats his last supper and then heads out into the darkness. In John 13, Jesus eats his last supper And then as Judas goes out to betray him, the Apostle John stresses that it was night. So do you hear the similarity? Two kings, both eating a last supper, both eating at night. 
That's where the similarities end and the hope begins. Saul went out into the darkness because of his sin. Saul went out to endure the judgment of God that he deserved. But Jesus went out into the darkness not to face his own sin, but to deal with the sin of his people. Jesus went into the darkness to bear the judgment of God. A judgment He did not deserve, but a judgment He would take on behalf of His people. And so, there on the cross, in the worst darkness this world has ever known, King Jesus did what only He could do. He was forsaken so that we would be saved. He was crushed so that we would be redeemed. He was judged so that we would be forgiven. It's the hope of the Gospel, brothers and sisters. Here in 1 Samuel 28, one king facing the darkness of his sin and being condemned. Another king, our king, the Lord Jesus, facing our darkness and not condemned, but securing our salvation so that we could say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the final word of 1 Samuel 28, and it's a word of hope. So may God the Father give you grace today by His Spirit to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ the King who took our darkness and rose again to bring us into the marvelous light of the presence of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.